Welcome. You're listening to a sermon podcast from Oak Hills Church in Folsom, California. Would you pray with me, please? Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning as we turn our attention now to your word. We want to open ourselves to it. We want to get caught up into the incredible vision of what life with you is all about. I pray that The oneness of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and the oneness you invite us to as people who are different, to manifest the glory of the Trinity through our oneness under Jesus. We pray that as we make our way through this, that you will give us humility and gentleness, and you will also give us ears that can hear. And we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, if you have been part of this gathering, either live or online for the past month and a half or so, then you know that we have been talking about various tremors, as we are calling them, that are kind of shaking our society. Points of tension where people in groups increasingly line up on opposite ends of the field as if they are going to go against each other over some issue. And so far we have looked at Uh, Things like wealth and poverty, citizens and refugees, character and leadership, marriage and relationship, and a few others. And today, we are looking at race and unity. Sometimes when people don't like what their church is talking about, they disguise their opinion in the form of a question. You probably know how this goes. You know, why can't we just teach the Bible? Well, believe it or not, that's actually an ex- expressing an opinion on what the church is actually teaching. Or why don't we just preach the gospel instead of getting sidetracked by all these other concerns? Similar thing happening there. And you know, I actually haven't heard much of this over the past few weeks, except on the weekends that Dave has been speaking. I don't know what that means, <laughs> but just an observation. Now, me not hearing about it doesn't mean people don't feel it, but one of the things that I have long loved and appreciated about Oak Hills Church is our willingness to authentically face the piercing truth of Scripture without hiding behind these spiritualized and over-spiritualized smokescreens. The longer I serve as a pastor, the more I realize that the Bible and the gospel are really only being taught and preached when they are creating a transformative disruption in the nooks and crannies of our lives. The scriptures and the gospel, in other words, are causing us to ask deeper questions about God and about ourselves and wrestle with potentially unsettling truths about faith and how this faith is to be lived out in everyday life and culture. And the Bible and the gospel have much to do and much to say about today's tremor of race and unity. I was recently talking with some black friends of mine about this message, what I'm doing here today. Both of these friends are leaders in the Christian community. Both of them have had a shaping influence on my life and in my life and in my understanding of racial issues. Both of them would call themselves and their families privileged. And I was expressing my angst over this topic. And also I was talking about the various reasons why I feel 
so passionate about this topic, and they suggested I approach this as more of a testimony or maybe a journal entry than a sermon, and that resonated with me. So I've tried to approach this more like I'm opening my journal and reading it to you, just speaking metaphorically, rather than preaching a sermon. Now, that can be dangerous, as you know, because journals aren't as edited as sermons are. So remember that when you are getting annoyed with what I'm saying. Just a journal entry. Mike's pouring out on paper. I feel this subject deeply. And my feeling and my passion, I think, come out of my own quest for spiritual growth in this area over the years. And God has done some really good things in the depths of my soul over many years toward the end of conforming me and transforming me into the character of Jesus. And I've seen some of that growth. My feeling and passion also come out of my conviction that the Christian church should be a community where racial tensions ease and where some kind of healing happens over all the racial division. That should happen in a local church. So I feel passionate about this. And my feeling and my passion come from a hunch I have that some white Christians minimize racism and prejudice and racial tension as though they aren't really that big of a deal and they don't really matter that much. Michael Emerson is a white professor at the University of Chicago, Illinois, and he's written widely on sociology, on religion, on race, and he offers this rather startling assessment based on research he is currently conducting for a new book he is writing. In his words, 67% of white practicing Christians are not following Christianity, but a religion of whiteness. Now that hits a bit hard. I am not the type who reads one statistic and takes it as gospel, but this grabbed my attention because it confirms a discouraging hunch I've had for a while. I would never put myself in the same league as a person who has a PhD in sociology and has spent their life immersed in these kinds of things. But what he said confirms a kind of restless and discouraging hunch I've had for a while. I frequently hear people in the Christian community respond to racism and racial issues by regurgitating something they heard on their favorite news program or read on their favorite Pope's Facebook or Twitter feed. And it seems like they're wanting to downplay or minimize the racial issues in our culture. I've watched on the other side of the spectrum, others in the Christian community, respond to racism and racial issues by blaming the church or by blaming the pastor for not sufficiently addressing the problem, and then they wash their hands over the church's unpardonable sin, and then they deal themselves out of the church, and not to step too hard on delicate toes, but I find both responses deeply discouraging and indicative of rampant immaturity in the hearts of God's people. So to be clear once more, I'm not coming to this topic today as an expert with a notebook full of answers. I'm coming with my journal, not literally, but you get it. 
And these are some of my thoughts and some of my ideas and ramblings based on where I am in my own journey with these things. So if you would stand for our scripture reading to kind of get us going, I'm going to be reading from Galatians chapter 2. I'm going to read what might seem like an odd place to break it, but I'll start in verse 11, and I'm going to end in verse 16. Just to keep this simple, Cephas here is uh, the apostle Peter. Starting in verse 11, when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles, but when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in front of them all, you are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? We who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. And I want to start by talking about the fact that racial tension has been a frontier of the kingdom of God since the very beginning. This passage is one of many dozens that shows the racial and ethnic tensions pulling at the early church right from the very beginning. Race is an arena where God wants to move and transform and heal. Or put it this way, where there is racial tension, the kingdom of God wants to break in and bring healing. We can go back further than Galatians to see this. All the way back at the beginning, from Genesis chapter 12 and forward from there, we find these two seemingly incompatible truths. The Jewish people were God's chosen people, and God's salvation was for the whole world. The Jewish people were the chosen ones, and God's salvation was for the whole world. So God's plan from the very start was to level the walls and level the division that we put up to separate our group from that group over there. So racial difference and racial identity are a kind of raw material for the new kingdom community God is creating. And prejudice and racism are sins that violate the shalom of this kingdom community. So race... And racial issues matter immensely in the kingdom of God. They actually open the door for the kingdom to break in. Right in the beginning of the Bible and right in the beginning of the early church and many other places, we find racial tension hovering right at the surface, waiting to be resolved one way or another. Now, if one is part of the chosen it's kind of easy to realize how easy it would be to become exclusive and arrogant. Well, I'm one of the chosen ones. How was, does one hold that without starting to drift immediately toward arrogance and exclusiveness? 
And if you're one of the chosen, it would be easy to forget the Gentile. We see this throughout the Bible. Yeah, 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 God, we get it. The Gentiles are part of it too, but we're, we're the chosen ones. See, the weight of this is not felt until the Gentiles start to become part of it too. That's when faith proclaimed becomes faith lived and new headaches and challenges begin. And this is the scene in the book of Galatians. Paul wrote the book to a group of churches that, like many of the early churches, had a large Jewish contingent with all their history and all their privilege and all their power. And as Gentiles were brought into the faith and into the church, the Jewish contingent felt their power slipping through their fingers. So they doubled down on Jewish laws and rituals, and they tried to get these Gentiles peeled off to the side where they could impose Jewish laws and Jewish rituals on them so that when they came into the church, they would retain this Jewishness or they would take on this Jewishness that was part of the the controlling group. So Paul writes at the beginning of the letter, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. It's important for us to see this, just to feel the weight of these racial issues. Paul is saying you're turning away from the essence of your faith, which is being driven apart by racial tension. And Paul confronts them, and he does so very directly and with great urgency. If you read the beginning of the book, it's like he's saying, hey, how you doing? And then he lets them have it. Like he really doesn't care how they're doing. He just wants to tee them up. And if nothing else, we seize Paul's passion to make sure they realize the gospel has much to say about their growing racial discord. In fact, Jesus' death and resurrection was intended to tear down this dividing wall of hostility. The gospel was moving, in other words, and showing itself when people who were once apart were coming together under Jesus. Peter was a good Jew. But because the gospel was getting into him, because the gospel was starting to permeate into the nooks and crannies of his heart and soul, he had begun to see the Gentiles' place in the kingdom of God. So he had begun to sit at tables, dinner tables, lunch tables, and the Lord's table, and eat with Gentiles. Not something a good Jew would typically do, but something a good Jewish Christ follower would do. Because Jews and Gentiles feasting at the table was a sign of the kingdom breaking in. But then Peter felt the pressure of unapproving Jews who showed up and reasserted their power and privilege, reestablished the practice of Jews and Gentiles being separated, reinforced the importance of things like circumcision for any real religious person, and Peter buckled. He stopped eating with the Gentiles. So here's the showdown. The Apostle Paul shows up in the city of Antioch at the church in Antioch and he sees this duplicity of Peter on display where Peter is now only eating with Jews, not with Gentiles. And Paul publicly confronts Peter 
in front of everybody. So here these two church heavyweights go at it because Paul thought Peter's actions were harming the message of the gospel by erecting racial barriers instead of tearing them down and by introducing something other than Jesus' grace and goodness as the foundation of new life and salvation. See, here and throughout the New Testament, we find Jews and non-Jews trying to figure out how to be the church together. Quick translation, it was racial from the very beginning. Jews held the power. Their history, their traditions, their law gave them an exclusive and privileged position. We are the chosen ones. But now here comes the gospel. Disrupting the narrative. Turning it inside out. Remaking it. Reframing it. Transforming the power and the privilege into humility and service and setting forth a new vision of a new community of Jews and Gentiles who are becoming a unified one through the presence and power of the risen Jesus Christ. All to the absolute shock of the watching world. Two groups with little in common except their disdain for one another coming together in love through the presence and through the power of Jesus. One of the keys to the gospel making a difference in a church or in a faith community or in a culture is its power to pull people together who on their own would not choose to be together, like Jews and Gentiles. The gospel, in other words, from the very beginning was big enough and strong enough and intended to unite different races under the kingship of Jesus. So any notion that race, racism, racial tension is a minimal thing to kind of brush over here or a sidebar thing that doesn't have anything to do with the gospel or a tangential thing that is sort of a fringe thing in the kingdom is just 100% inaccurate and wrong. Secondly, let's talk about the beautiful racial ethics of the kingdom. The Bible gives it to us in plain language, Genesis 1.27. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Then over in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 16, just feel the racial walls collapsing under the inspired words of the Apostle Paul. Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. By setting aside in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations, his purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, 
by which he put to death their hostility. Another place where we see the beautiful racial ethics of the kingdom in this book we're in right now, Galatians 3, starting in verse 26. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So the beautiful racial ethics of the kingdom are these. Every single person is made in God's image and therefore has God-given dignity. So everyone who claims to love and follow God must treat others with dignity and respect, which means racism and prejudice in all of their overt and subtle forms are antithetical to the way of God's kingdom. They are sins against God. They are sins against others. And we as followers of Jesus should repent of these sins in our own hearts, lament these sins in our world, and confront these sins in others in whatever ways we can. And I know it sounds so obvious. Ah, duh, no kidding. Christians should not be racist. You woke me up this morning to tell me that? What's next? Five times five is 25? Well, obvious as it all may seem, and maybe I'm alone in this, but I can't get the professor's statement out of my mind. 67% of white practicing Christians are not following Christianity, but a religion of whiteness. His survey asked the respondents many questions, and there were many groups surveyed. White practicing Christians was just one of the groups. There were many other groups, like non-Christians and other minority groups. One survey question asked this, do racial minorities use racism as an excuse for economic inequalities? Over 70% of white practicing Christians agreed with that statement, while most every other group disagreed. Fifteen questions sought to uncover the respondent's racial prejudice index by scoring statements like this one, I am fearful of other races. The highest scoring group by far was white practicing Christians. And there were many other disturbing trends from this survey. Don't take my word for it. You can type in YouTube, this guy's name, Michael Emerson. And I'm sure if you dig a little bit, you'll find the very thing that I watched where he lays this out. Now, maybe he's a knucklehead. Maybe he has no clue what he's talking about. Maybe he's a scam artist. Maybe this professor has an agenda. And he's twisting the data to make old white guys with white hair feel bad. But... He is white, appears to be a Christian, and he's older. Something about what he's saying confirms this low-grade hunch I've had. So let me ask us all a question. What drives our racial narrative? Where do we get our wisdom for navigating racial tension and division? And again, remember, I'll say this a few times. I'm in ramble, journaling, testimony mode. Just kind of coughing it up as I think about it. 
I think way too many Christians get their wisdom for navigating racial tension and division from their favorite news channel. So the media, I think, drives our racial narrative way too much. But people of faith are to be people of the book and people of the gospel. And when the book and the gospel cut against the grain of our favorite news channel, we have to decide who to follow. We have to choose our discipler. And if we always follow our preferred news channel, then we are more accurately people of a particular news channel or political persuasion, and the book and the gospel are merely reinforcements of those primary sources. And yet the Bible and the gospel have all kinds of things to say about the sin of racial prejudice and racism and the vandalized shalom they cause. And if we read the Bible and read the gospel with eyes and with a heart that is looking for this wisdom, we will surely find it even if we're half asleep. How the kingdom wants to deal with these divides. John chapter 4 is one such example. Jesus enters Samaritan territory right there. Whoa. He's up to something. He has a discussion with the Samaritan woman. Whoa. He's really up to something. And this Samaritan woman seems to have a rather questionable past. He's really up to something. In that one incident, Jesus is unwinding mounds of racial tension and division because Jews and Samaritans did not like each other. Samaritans were half-Jews, half-breeds, is what the pure Jew called the Samaritan. They didn't like each other. There was racial hostility between them, exactly what Ephesians 2 says was happening between Jews and Samaritans. There was a hierarchy of who was better, but Jesus walks right into the middle of it. He turns this woman inside out, and in the process, he transforms her and her village, and he leaves his disciples stunned by what they just witnessed. And in this one story, God's narrative on racism and prejudice is really simple and clear. So who's driving my racial narrative? Fox News? Tucker Carlson? CNN? Anderson Cooper? These are the popes we follow. These are our disciples too often. And too often, they set the racial agenda for us, and they disciple us more than King Jesus does. So unlearning is an essential part of spiritual growth. We often talk about learning and growing. I want to talk about unlearning and growing. Some of you golf and some of you know that I like to golf. And if I had a golf club here and let's say I took someone just randomly out of the room who clearly has no idea how to golf, just hypothetically say Randy Chance, and I had him come up here and I gave him a golf club and said, Randy, just swing the club a few times. And then over the next six weeks, said, Randy, just a few times every day, swing that club. Here's what would happen. He'd start swinging it, and he would swing it for a while. And eventually, he would swing it in a certain way with certain tendencies and certain nuances. And some of these will help Randy 
play golf, and some of them will hurt Randy's ability to play golf. And if Randy wants to get better and grow in golf, then eventually he will have to unlearn some of the things in his swing, even though some of the things he'll have to unlearn will feel very natural and will have become part of his golf swing the more he uses it. In fact, some of the really good golf teachers have even said, if it feels really good and really natural, it probably isn't what you should be doing. And it's the same in our journey with God. And perhaps especially true when it comes to racism and racial issues and racial tensions. I think we underestimate the importance of unlearning in the process of becoming a more devoted follower of Jesus. I've seen this repeatedly in my journey of faith. There are aspects of my life, my experience, my past, my upbringing, my marriage, whatever, that have profoundly shaped me and predisposed me to have a certain attitude or perspective, but not necessarily one that by itself honors Jesus Christ. And part of my journey to becoming more like him involves unlearning some things. In our passage, Paul confronted Peter on a narrative, and here's the key, that was ingrained in Peter since he was a small child. Jews were God's chosen people. They were the ones through whom the world would be saved. The Jews were God's chosen people. The law and circumcision were crucial to being a good Jew. All of that was tattooed in Peter's soul from a very young age. But here comes the gospel. Here comes the Bible. And I wish we could just run out to the implications of here comes the gospel and here comes the Bible. But oddly, yet not uncommonly, many Christians don't let the Bible or the gospel change their swing, so to speak. They don't let the Bible disrupt them. And race, my opinion, is one of those arenas where Christians tend to dig in and get defensive and hunker down. So let me just throw this out rhetorically. Regarding race, is Jesus one of the experts where we search for wisdom? Or is he not one of the experts where we search for wisdom? Or is he the expert where we search for wisdom? Am I willing to unlearn my attitude and perspective on race so I can relearn it from Jesus himself. Next thing, listening is better than defending. I've learned this through experience, particularly in a marriage that's 32 years old. Listening is better than defending. That means I know it. doesn't mean I do it, but I know it. I mentioned earlier a conversation I had a few days ago with two deeply loved friends of mine who both happen to be African-American. They both love God. They both care about the local church. They're both committed to walking with Jesus in the details of their lives. Neither of them is on a mission to blow up the church or distance themselves from it. 
because of its failures or mistakes. Both are passionate about the kingdom of God. Neither has succumbed to the persuasive power of politics. And both of them have a perspective on race I don't have and can't have and won't have, ever. And if I am going to learn, then I have to be willing to admit they have a perspective I don't have and they can teach me things I can't learn on my own. So one of the very best things I can do is sit at their feet and ask questions and shut my mouth and listen. Not on Facebook, not on email, not on social media, but sitting with and listening to and learning from those who know more about race and racism and what it is like to live in a white world than I do. It's kind of a silly little example, so it's probably worth crunching it up and tossing it in the garbage can, but I'll let you decide. You, you ever interact with somebody who has a back problem and they start telling you about it and you don't have a back problem? And they talk about it and they talk about it. And you ever see them they, when they're standing, a lot of them are doing this or they're leaning on whatever's in front of them and they're stretching whatever they're doing and you just, you don't have that. So you're talking to them and they're going, you know, yeah, it hurts when I walk or it hurts when I sit. I can only sit for so long. And part of you is sitting there thinking, okay, great, can we get on with this? I don't have a back issue. So I'm sorry you do, but I don't have a back issue. Again, it's a silly example. But part of what's going on there is it's not our experience. So we're not that interested. And yet when you sit down with someone who's really got back pain, you say, well, tell me what that's like. And they start to tell you what it's like. You go, wait a second. You're talking about every day that bothers you? Yeah, every day. You're talking about like walking from here to the car? Like, yeah, that's what I'm saying. That bo- I, this is not me. I'm just saying hypothetically. That, I mean, that. I'm being hypothetical here. But you get the point. Really? Yeah, really. It's that really that only comes when we're with somebody whose experience is different than ours. So we listen. We ask questions. I have to say the defensiveness around this by followers of Jesus is deeply discouraging. Somewhere along the way, and forgive me for this, but I'm going to go here. Somewhere along the way, Christians acquired this idea that having power being first, being the greatest, was part of being God's people. And I don't know how that ever took root. Because a casual reading of the Bible, when we're half asleep, will tell us over and over and over again, the way of Jesus is the way of humility. You want to find your life? Lose it. The people of God are usually on the outside of power looking in. And when they're on the inside of power looking out, all kinds of things turn into chaos. The Babylonians and the Assyrians and the Persians and the Romans all once ruled over God's people for for centuries. So God's people were an oppressed people for most of their history. Most of our Bible was written to people living under oppression. Most of our Bible is about God's suffering people trying to cling to him in the midst of hard circumstances where this idea that being God's people meant first or greatest or best 
I've got no clue. I was in Oregon or Wisconsin. For some reason, I don't remember which it was. They're not exactly next to each other, but I can't remember where I was. It was this last summer. And I saw a sign, and it said, one nation, one sign, one nation under God, and then under that it said, make America great again. And I got driving for the next 20 miles thinking, how do those things fit together? For a follower of Jesus Christ who has even a slight awareness of who God is and what he's doing in the world, how can living under God ever be thought to have anything to do with greatness in the way that word is typically understood? I mean, sacrifice? Sure. One nation under God, sacrifice more. One nation under God, serve more. One nation under God, love one another more deeply. One nation under God, have compassion. But great? I can't make the connection. Remember, we're just in my journal here. I'm just kind of throwing stuff out. But it doesn't make sense to me. I don't know how we got there. There's a lot of people writing a lot of books that are trying to help us understand how we got there. Now is not the time for that. But the fact that we got there, just run into that collision and go, how is this so? So let me get back to the point. There's nothing more loving, nothing more formative, nothing better than sitting with a friend who has a different ethnicity than you do. Black, Asian, some other minority, and asking them questions about their experience with their back pain and listening and learning. Which brings me to the last thing I'm going to say very little about. And that is simply this. The church can be a healing community. I know that it is popular these days to have all sorts of critiques and lob all sorts of grenades at the institution of the church, try to tear it apart, break it down, maybe even get rid of it. I just can't find that in the Bible. Uh, reform it, yes. Purify it, yes. Tweak it, yes. Even overhaul it, yes. But get rid of it, no. And I still believe in the midst of all that goes on that the church, and by the church I mean a local church, can be a healing community for the racial division that is happening in our nation. This idea of oneness Ben prayed about a few minutes ago. This prayer of Jesus in John 17, praying for disciples who would come later, us, that they would be one, Father, as you and I are one. And this vision that has captivated me for a long time, this vision of Oak Hills as a church where difference, different ages, genders, races, political affinities, economic situations, differences, come together and feast together, And follow God together. And we become a sign of the kingdom when we do this. The greater our difference, the more powerful our witness can be. Because the greater our difference, the more obvious it is, what are these people doing together? They have very little in common. In fact, they have a lot not in common. How can they be together, journeying together, walking this out together? The answer is Jesus pulls people who are different together and they learn to live under him. And this is one of my burns. This is one of my passions for us as we think about the future. 
to continue to crawl our way toward being a church filled with different people who, through the power of God's Spirit, we manifest His glory through the oneness He cultivates, even though we are very different. We become, in other words, an alternative community. I'll finish with a quote from one of my first seminary professors, a guy that he's got like 17 brains in his head. He's just a brilliant guy. His name is Donald Carson. Here's what he said. What binds us together is not common education, common race, common income levels, common politics, common nationality, common accents, common jobs, or anything else of that sort. Christians come together because they have all been loved by Jesus himself. They are a band of natural enemies who love one another for Jesus' sake. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for your gentleness, your goodness. Thank you that your word sometimes stings, hurts a little bit maybe, certainly reveals things, shows us things. I pray that whatever might have been said today that has some substance or something of your spirit on it, that we'd remember it and that you'd do something with it in us. And whatever is just me being uh, a knucklehead spouting nonsense would be forgotten. Recognize that this is a world where some of our friends have been harmed deeply by racism and the pain of racism from our nation's past, the lingering scars of it in the present, and by current and refreshed expressions of this racism. We stand against this. We confess our sins of prejudice and racism. We lament the sins of our nation around these things. And we continue to pray for healing. And we pray especially that within our little universe here at Oak Hills, that we might learn what oneness actually is. And that as we learn to come together as one under you as our king, that some kind of flickering, sporadic glory would shine through our brokenness. And we might see the kingdom advance and break in in ways we can't imagine. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.